This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the absolute horror show that is the U.S. immigration system. Understanding, of course, that it was bad before, but has been revved up to literally inhumane as our government makes a concerted effort to dehumanize asylum seekers on the run for their lives. Clips today come from The David Pakman Show, Off Kilter, Ring of Fire Radio, On the Media, Intercepted, The Dig, and In the Thick. I've been covering the ways in which Donald Trump has been sort of uh, placating the alt-right and neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and it might all be merely appeasement with no policy connected to it. That would be bad enough. But given Trump's policy ideas about immigration and Hispanic individuals and Mexico and all of that stuff, it's pretty clear that there is actually at least some policy behind the horrible, horrible comments that have been made by Donald Trump. And so to give you one example, America first, right? We talked about America first, maybe a seemingly innocuous patriotic slogan. It actually has its roots in a hugely xenophobic and white supremacist movement from the early 20th century, which we've outlined before. Lots of other examples. The new one that I want to talk about today is Trump referring to immigrants reproducing, having children as, quote, breeding. This is a term that the white supremacists absolutely love. And you might hear that and say, you know, usually we call it human reproduction or we call it having kids breeding. It's almost like a term we would use when we talk about animal reproduction. And that is exactly why white supremacists love the use of the term breeding when talking about brown skinned immigrants having children, because it indirectly refers to them like animals. Donald Trump tweeted late last week, there is a revolution going on in California. So many sanctuary areas want out of this ridiculous crime infested and breeding concept. Jerry Brown is trying to back out of the National Guard at the border, but the people of the state are not happy, want security and safety now. Referring to immigrant reproduction, especially Hispanic immigrants in California, as breeding is a way to dehumanize the idea that they infest and they breed and they bring with them horrible things. And it's not a random term that Trump just used. And it has the sort of side effect of dehumanizing immigrants. It's something that goes back a long time. We can go all the way back to 1919. Adolf Hitler's first anti-Semitic writings talked about inbreeding Jews, and he used the term many more times in the decades that followed. But it's very easy to say, oh, come on, David, going back to the early 20th century and Hitler, it's almost apocryphal, even if true, at least in reference to Trump. Fine. You don't need to go to Hitler. Go to Trump appointee Carl Higby, who resigned after we learned that he referred to black women as thinking, quote, breeding is a form of government employment. Look at the wildly racist Republican Congressman Steve King, who said about immigrant screening, quote, you get the pick of the litter 
and you got yourself a pretty good bird dog. Again, referring to immigrants as animals. You look at Dan Stein from the Anti-Immigration Federation for American Immigration Reform, who said immigrants are doing competitive breeding to reduce the white majority. And even look at former guest on this program and widely known white nationalist Richard Spencer talking about, quote, interracial breeding. The debate has mostly become whether Trump is deliberately saying this stuff to placate white supremacists. And I would argue it doesn't matter, right? Because the real question is, are the white supremacists reacting to the language? And the answer is that, yes, they are. They selectively ignore Trump's Jewish daughter, Trump's Jewish son-in-law, Trump's Jewish grandchildren, and they see these references and they are emboldened. They see this and they say, that's a signal from Trump. It's a signal from Trump that he's one of us. And if you're against white supremacy, which many Trump supporters claim to be, you have to call this stuff out and you have to denounce it, whether or not it's deliberate, because it's not like most presidents are constantly accidentally appeasing white supremacists and we just have to kind of deal with it as standard operating procedure. Trump is an outlier in this regret, uh, and it has to be called out in this regard, rather, unless you agree with it, which, of course, many Trumpists do. They should all say, I agree with the guy on taxes. I agree with the guy on trade. But America first and talking about immigrants breeding, it's got to be called out. And unfortunately, too many Trumpists are completely indifferent to the fact that he's using this language. Yeah, I do think it's an open question as to whether this was a dog whistle and Trump knew what he was doing yeah. or if it's just something in his subconscious. And I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of that. Is he actually a racist or does he just say racist things? Does he have a few racist views? It's pretty open-ended. I don't know. It is. And increasingly, I think it doesn't matter. I mean, when yeah. Trump was a candidate, it was a, it, it was an interesting question. Uh, was he doing all of the things that he was doing and saying uh, Hispanics, you know, rapists and whatever, although some I'm, I'm guessing I'm sure are good people, the making fun of the uh, disabled reporter, all of that stuff. Before it was sort of a, a, an academic or theoretical question. Is someone writing this stuff for him? Is someone telling him to do these things? Is it a reflection of his sincerely held beliefs? What is it? It's less relevant now because now the impact is that it has catalyzed some of the most disgusting and depraved and vile to use some of the David Pakman bingo buzzwords. <laughs> um, it has catalyzed some of these horrible, horrible groups. They see Trump as their guy. We see from the organizations that track hate groups, including the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, that there is a revitalization of these groups. So what we now need to focus on is not actually what is deep in Trump's brain. And you know what? There are people on the right who should appreciate that because there's people on the right who always like to say you can't really know what's in someone's heart or what's in someone's mind, no matter how racist what they say might seem to be. You don't really know what their beliefs are. Fine. I'm admitting to the, to, to the idea that we can move on from that. We have to focus on the impact, and the impact is a disaster. This month, the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security announced this new zero tolerance policy, which basically means that everyone who is caught 
crossing the U.S. border, including asylum-seeking families with children, uh, will be forcibly apprehended, detained, um, refer for prosecution, and that means that many of these kids have been uh, removed from their parents and has created this um, whole array of chaos at our borders and also prompted a new movement about what is happening to the treatment of children in, in this country and across our borders. So um, this policy is new. It is, in fact, as Jeremy mentioned, something that the Trump administration can end at any point. They have, through a series of executive actions, made it much harder for people to claim asylum in this country. They are using the cruel practice um, to, of separating kids from their parents as a way to deter migration. Um, you know, what is what is really wrong and, and really moving about this is that, uh, one, it's been helpful to see how many people have been outraged by this policy. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that you know, their initial reports about 1,500 children that were, quote unquote, missing. You know, these kids are not missing. These are kids that the government, uh, for some reason or another, has not been tracking, given that, you know, in some cases, um, some of these children may have been reunited with family members who are sponsors. Uh, but uh, the last thing, you know, we want and something that we saw um, the Trump administration trying to do, and in some cases going after um, as, uh, family members um, that were becoming sponsors for these kids. So um, under the zero tolerance policy, um, one government official uh, testified in a congressional hearing that in just a two-week span, over 600 children may have been separated from their parent. Um, so we have seen reports about widespread abuse by CBP, by ICE. Um, and I think what we are going to see because of this policy is that many more kids are going to be separated from their parents. And the outrage on social media was just tremendous this weekend. I think a lot of people reading for the first time accounts of of parents being forcibly separated from children as young as a year, 18 months, literally infants. The, the, the picture that is burned into my brain from this past weekend when these stories were breaking all over the place was there's, a, a, there's actually a bus, and maybe there's more than one, um, that ICE uses that is exclusively for babies and and you look at the picture and it is literally all car seats, right, that are in uh, like strapped into chairs throughout the bus. It just the thought that there's at least even one bus dedicated to babies who have been taken from their parents at the border tells you almost everything you need to know about this White House's immigration policy. And, and it's important to know, Rebecca, that, you know, the parents are also suffering, right? They're suffering not just only because they've taken their kids away, but because under this new Sessions Trump policy, they're being prosecuted as criminals, even if they have valid claims for asylum. So people are being jailed. They are being detained. In some cases, they may be deported and questions remain about whether they will be able to reunite in time with their children. So huge impacts on the parents, but also, and, and I want to note here, the American Academy of Pediatrics even weighed in this weekend with a, a powerfully worded statement pointing out that we're inflicting lifelong damage on these kids in ways that could even stymie their brain development because of the trauma that they're currently experiencing at the hands of the federal government. And like to paint a a picture of, of who these people are, because it's so often caricatured, not only by the Trump administration, but but in the media. These are not MS-13 gang members. These, in many cases, are a young mother 
and her child fleeing a country like Honduras or another country in Central America, which have some of the most extreme levels of violence in the world. Um, gang violence is rampant, which is why we've seen an uptick in, in uh, immigration recently. And they make it basically are fleeing their lives in many cases and make it to the U.S., which we hold as the land of opportunity. And they get there and they are not only crim criminalized and criminally prosecuted, but they then have their child torn from them, a tool that throughout history has been used uh, to to criminalize and and emotionally torture people. I mean, it's family separation, you know, short of the death penalty is one of the worst things you can do to a human being. And I think this links directly back to Trump calling these people animals. The only way you can do something so dehumanizing is if you no longer think of them as human. And that's exactly what we're watching play out. You mentioned Honduras. Another headline that broke in the past several days uh, was about a, a trans woman from Honduras seeking asylum in the United States who died in ICE custody, uh, not the first death in ICE custody, actually the fourth in custody death in I for ICE just this year alone. Her name uh, it was Roxana Hernandez. Jeremy, what was the story there? How did she come to die in in, in custody of, of yeah. ICE. Uh, so this was a 33-year-old um, trans woman from Honduras, as you mentioned. So she was seeking asylum in the U.S., um, which means um, they are applying to be uh, protected, um, uh, often fleeing violence. Um, the cause of death listed uh, was pneumonia. Um, as, as Claudia was explaining before the show, um, the reason someone might have pneumonia in ICE custody is they are often kept at um, uh, sub-zero temperatures. Um, the, there has been documentation of serious health abuses at the hands of ICE um, by Human Rights Watch. Uh, this is the fourth death, death this year alone. Um, there have been dozens and dozens of deaths at one single ICE facility in the in the past couple of years. There was one man who ended up uh, dying from cancer. Who um, they found his his journal afterwards. He said he was treated with ibuprofen. He pleaded uh, with his family for help throughout the process. Uh, I think it's 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 hard for many of us to wrap our heads around, but um, the way our country is is treating immigrants is is some of the is on par with some of the worst abuses in history in case you didn't know it you can be part of the show voicemail messages from listeners just like you have been the basis for all kinds of interesting conversations we've had over the years in the voicemail and final comment section at the end of each episode so whether you want to agree disagree or simply have a question we would love to hear from you the number to dial is 202-999-3991 I want to talk about, uh, you know, refugees writ large, but the the idea of separating uh, children from their parents, and, and maybe you can help me out on this, 
As mm. far as I can tell, the only justification that the even the administration has given for this new policy is some type of draconian form of punishment, right? I mean, like, this is just supposed to be, we're going to teach you a lesson type of thing. Is there any other justification for this that that even they are offering? Well, they've said a number of different things. Uh, John Kelly, a little bit more than a year ago, this is a few months into the beginning of the Trump administration, talked about separating children from their parents, who had crossed the border or who had even presented at the border. And that's an important distinction to make. And maybe we'll talk more about that. Requesting asylum as a means of deterrence. So I think punishment and deterrence here go hand in hand. Yes, they are effectively punishing the parents and the children. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible process for all involved. Um, but it's not just to slap them on the wrist. And it's doing a lot more than that, actually. Um, I, I think it amounts in some cases to torture. It's not only to punish them, but it's also to send a message. You know, it, it's really a form of shock advertising. It's, it's frightening the bejesus out of other people who may want to try to do the same thing. But and, and I think this speaks to the real need for actually protecting these people, that it's not working. Uh, we haven't seen any evidence of it working so far. And what that means is that people are in very real need of protection, of asylum, of some sort of status that gives them a way to live outside of their home countries where they're being persecuted, tortured, or or otherwise harmed. I, wa- I want to make the point you just made really crystal clear for people, because there's this this other misapprehension, I think, that is out there, that the reason why people cross the border is for very casual reasons. And and particularly when we're talking about children coming across the border as if it's like, you know, uh, uh, I'm just going to go to the land of milk and honey. Um, I have a good life where I am at now, but I just want to upgrade because I want, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the latest fashions or whatever it is, as if mm-hmm. it's like, you know, just some type of vacation that people feel mm-hmm. like they're taking. Mm-hmm. They are aware mm-hmm. that their children could be separated from them. And anybody who's in a parent understands what the, the implications of that are. Yet this, the, the reason why people are crossing this border is because they're, this is a push system, right? They're not mm-hmm. being pulled necessarily by, uh, the, uh, visions of, of milk and honey in the United States. They are being pushed from their homes because they are living in conditions that are an existential threat to them. I don't think people fully get that in, in a lot of right. these cases. Right. And I, th- I think that could be best illustrated by telling stories of these actual people who are doing it. Yes, they're leaving, you know, political persecution or persecution based on gender, race, religion, a number of other issues. But when you actually listen to some of these stories, you really understand. You know, one of the cases, one of the women that I spoke with, um, young 26-year-old woman, she was living in northern Mexico in Juarez, a, a city who has had lots of trouble and violence for the number of years. She was actually kidnapped into a prison. Her, the, the, the father of her child kidnapped her while she was visiting him in, inside of his prison cell. He, he was a member of the cartel. He ran a prison. He beat her horribly inside. He got so scared that she was dying that he called, let her call her family. They, she was basically rescued out of prison. And when she went to report it to the prison officials and subsequently the police, who both of 
which those agencies were in cahoots with the cartel. She was threatened again. Her child was removed from her. Her her child was six months old at this time. Within about 24 hours, she presented at the port of entry in El Paso and asked for asylum. That is a completely legal, lawful act under both U.S. law and international law. So she she was so scared. She was in, in had been very recently physically abused, and she uh, uh, you know presented at the at the at the port of entry, and they actually let her in for a, a little while. They put a, a shackle on her, a, a GPS monitoring anklet on her, but um, a few weeks later, ICE took her into custody and separated her from her six-month-old child, who she was currently breastfeeding. She was in detention for eight months. Her child stopped recognizing her as his mother. She was forced to stop breastfeeding. She was allowed one once every two week contact visits with her child. Um, and, you know, here we have, I think, all, all parts of this story here. Uh, she was in very real need of protection. She came specifically to ask for that. She broke zero laws. No one ever charged her of breaking any laws. And yet she was separated, forcefully separated from her her, her breastfeeding infant, and she was separated from him for eight months. And that has extreme consequences. Not only on her, she was she described it as worse torture than she suffered inside of a prison in Juarez. But that is going to probably have lasting effects on, on that child. And this is one of hundreds and hundreds of cases that we're seeing right now. The battle for defining the impact of illegal immigration rages on. The president speaks of bad hombres, but as immigration beat journalist Gabby DeValle reminds us, the evidence does not support his case. So the New York Times reported last January that specifically male immigrants are between one-half and one-fifth as likely to be incarcerated as people who were born in the United States, which generally means that The data shows that immigrants are committing fewer crimes than non-immigrants. That applies to both undocumented immigrants and people with visas and green cards. Because even if you're here with a visa or a green card, you can still be deported if you commit a crime. So people are essentially trying not to get on ICE's radar. Because the daily truth for every undocumented resident remains the same. Eluding arrest and deportation by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Just switch on the news. A 39-year-old man, Jorge Garcia, who came here from Mexico when he was 10 years old, undocumented, and because of the crackdown of the Trump administration, he was being deported. He was saying goodbye to his wife and his two kids. Immigration agents today raided nearly 100 7-Eleven stores in 17 states and Washington, D.C., At least 21 suspected undocumented immigrants were arrested. For years, the federal government left Guadalupe Garcia de Reyes alone. Not anymore. Protesters gathered in Phoenix overnight, even holding the wheels of a government immigration van in a desperate move to stop it from taking her back to Mexico. But if the news is supposed to help us distinguish fact from propaganda, DeValle says the press is often a poor arbiter. 
many news outlets, she says, are reporting on deportation simply by lifting text verbatim from the administration. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at these ICE press releases, it'll be like murderer deported, child molester deported, person who served in a foreign army and killed all these kids deported. But it's never like we deported somebody's mom. Okay, so that's the ICE press release. But the press's job is to put things into perspective, not to reprint the government's assertions. And you say we are many of us failing at that. Because when ICE does these big roundups, these big arrests, they'll publicize it and they'll say, we arrested 100 people, 70 of them have criminal records. And that may be true, but then they'll give you a list of four people, for example, or five people, the most egregious offenders on the list. And because a lot of newsrooms are so under-resourced, they'll just print that without thinking about the context, without thinking about enhanced enforcement. And ultimately, it's damaging. Now, of course, I knew you were going to say that, and we've spoken to you before this <laughs> uh, recorded interview. And so I've come prepared with a fairly standard ICE press release from March 2017 about a series of arrests in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And in fact, I originally planned to read from the press release itself, but why bother? Because we have local Washington, D.C. area TV stations to simply read it for us. According to Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers, 82 people were arrested between March 26th and 30th. 68 of them were convicted criminal aliens. Of the remaining 14, two had ties to the MS-13 street gang. Two had orders of final removal. Three overstayed visas. One was wanted by foreign law enforcement. One was a verified human rights violator from Somalia. A 40-year-old man from Trinidad had drug and gun convictions. And a 35-year-old from Guatemala had a DUI conviction. They are all subject to immediate deportation. Sometimes it's rearranged, but it's generally the same information, same wording. It's an easy tip-off when they say criminal aliens, for example, because it's like ICE's favorite term. Okay, so you can understand why local TV stations, which don't have a whole mess of reporting resources, would be likely to use the prepared text over some B-roll footage of roundups taking place. And it's equally unsurprising that the Daily Caller ran the same story and that Breitbart and the like routinely publish articles cribbed entirely from ICE press releases. But it's not just the right-wing media and low-resource TV stations. Yeah, the Washington Post had a really similar piece that was basically the ICE press release plus a paragraph about how similar arrests happened under the Obama administration, but now Trump is arresting more people. And that was really the only thing that was added in terms of context or additional reporting outside of the press release. Now, in fairness, this was kind of an outlier for the Washington Post, which has usually been pretty good at the due diligence. In a separate piece, they actually do contextualize ISIS numbers, Brett? Yeah, so in the press release, it says that 68 of the 82 people arrested had previous convictions for, quote, crimes like armed robbery, larceny, and drug distribution. But other people had been arrested for DUIs or traffic offenses. And it was also the Washington Post which reported that about half the immigrants arrested by the Trump administration by that point either had no criminal record or had only committed traffic offenses ranging from DUIs to driving without a license. 
If you're looking at the news, especially local publications, local TV stations reporting that this many criminals were deported, this many criminals were arrested, then you'll have this link in your mind between immigration and crime, even if that link isn't actually there in reality. Another thing about the way these press releases are constructed, since they are the harvest of raids, taking a lot of people in custody at once, is that we are under attack by swarms of dangerous, undocumented immigrants. But the underlying crimes haven't necessarily just all happened yesterday, right? Right. So the way that a lot of ICE arrests work is that if you've committed a crime, let's say within the past 20 years, or even been arrested, your fingerprints are in your state's Department of Correction system. So ICE can go through those databases and get people's fingerprints, information, home address, whatever, And I've talked to lawyers from Brooklyn Defenders and other organizations who have told me that their clients have been arrested by ICE recently for crimes committed 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And a lot of things that people get picked up for aren't even crimes anymore. Like in New York City, for example, turnstile hopping, fare beating, fare evasion, whatever you want to call it, you can get a ticket for that now instead of just being arrested. But if you did it 20 years ago, then you're in the database forever. What, in your view, are the basic elements that should be included in any story about ICE enforcement? I think just contextualizing the press release is the most important thing. Reach out to a local immigrant rights organization to get the other side, the other perspective, for a more full picture. And these things don't necessarily take a lot of time. ICE has public information officers all over the country. If you find the one for that particular region and you call them or email them and you say, hey, you put out this press release saying that you arrested this many people, can you send me a list of the crimes committed? They'll send it to you. Even that is helpful because they don't necessarily always break it down saying 20 people had DUIs and one person was a murderer. The press releases are crafted to create a specific narrative. And it's not just that you should question ICE's press releases. You should question any press release as a journalist. That's part of your job. Now, I'm curious. The Trump administration obviously has built its image on immigration issues. But the previous administration, Obama's, deported 3 million people or some enormous number. Did they also try to skew public opinion by stacking the deck in press releases to suggest that the deportees were more dangerous than they actually were? Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely not a problem that started with the Trump administration. This predates Trump. This goes back to Obama and even Bush, I would say. I mean, this isn't necessarily a new problem, but I do think that, especially given an administration that is proven to be so hostile to immigrants, that it's even more damaging than it was under Obama. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. More specifically, listeners like Thomas C., Ralph C., and Susan H., who have all gone above and beyond to help support the show and keep it going strong. So a huge thanks to them. And of course, they've all been getting access to the members-only podcast feed that includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus two episodes of members-only in-depth discussions each month. In our most recent bonus episode, Amanda and I took a hard look at apologies, both personal and societal. You know, we thought it would be good to understand what it is that makes some people quickly rush to apologize for what they've said or done, while others resist the idea of ever having to apologize like their life depends on it. 
and I think it was a pretty good discussion. So to get that and all of our previous and future bonus episodes, just find us on Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash best of the left. Memberships start at $6 a month, but we will gratefully accept more if you want to give us extra support, and we really appreciate literally anything you can give, so please think about signing up. Again, find us at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. Thanks, as always, for your support. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. If you make There is a systematic anti-immigrant campaign being waged in this country. And we're going to get to Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions and this whole authoritarian apparatus in a little while. But first, let's go over some essential context. Back in 2014, lawyers and human rights advocates who work with undocumented immigrants began noticing a sharp uptick in reports of abuse, neglect, and other mistreatment of children while in custody of the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. And the allegations were horrifying. Agents punching a child in the head, another kicking a child in the ribs, Invasive and traumatic searches in the genital areas of teenage girls, making them scream. Threats of sexual assault. Denying medical care to a pregnant teenager. Using a stun gun on a boy, causing him to convulse and his eyes to roll back in his head. In June of 2014, the ACLU and the International Human Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School filed complaints with the Department of Homeland Security. The complaints documented the cases of 116 unaccompanied children, ranging in age from 5 years old to 17. According to these organizations, a quarter of the children said that they were physically or sexually abused. They said they'd been placed in so-called stress positions and were at times subjected to beatings by customs officials. More than half of the kids reported receiving death threats from U.S. government agents. DHS basically did absolutely nothing with this extremely disturbing information. So in December of 2014, the ACLU filed a Freedom of Information Act request. And last week, they released thousands of pages of documents. What emerged from these internal documents was a pattern of atrocious abuse and neglect. These documents are all, all from before Donald Trump was president. They describe a system that was run under the Obama administration. In fact, here's how the ACLU and University of Chicago Law Clinic described what was discovered through the FOIA request. In a recent report, they wrote that the records, quote, reveal the absence of meaningful internal or external agency oversight and accountability. The federal government has failed to provide adequate safeguards and humane detention conditions for children in CBP custody. It has further failed to institute effective accountability mechanisms for government officers who abuse the vulnerable children entrusted to their care. These failures have allowed a culture of impunity to flourish 
within CBP, subjecting immigrant children to conditions that are too often neglectful at best and sadistic at worst. That was during the Obama administration. And remember, Hillary Clinton was a supporter of deporting unaccompanied minors. Here she is speaking in 2014, just as these human rights groups were raising alarm. We've got to do more. I started this when I was secretary to deal with the violence in this region, to deal with border security. But we have to send a clear message just because your child gets across the border. That doesn't mean the child gets to stay. So we don't want to. We should also remember that Hillary Clinton played a key role in the coup in Honduras in 2009 that caused a sustained exodus that included unaccompanied children making their way to the United States illegally. And Clinton responded to this by openly saying that children should be deported, including some who fled the violence in a destabilized Honduras. In 2014, U.S. deportations hit their highest point. Under Obama, more than 2 million people were deported. Toward the end of his presidency, Obama did try to change some of that course. He tried to stop some mass deportations, but that was ultimately stifled by the U.S. Supreme Court. Remember, the ACLU said that during the Obama administration, the failure to stop the abuses being meted out by customs officials, quote, allowed a culture of impunity to flourish and that it was too often neglectful at best and sadistic at worst. Fast forward to today. Donald Trump is president. The racist anti-immigrant Jeff Sessions is the attorney general. And one of the so-called adults in the room, Chief of Staff John Kelly, he's an infamous xenophobe and a radical extremist on immigration. We know that from his time running U.S. Southern Command. John Kelly made no bones about his support for deporting children, which he called, quote, the name of the game to a large degree. In an interview with NPR, Kelly said the children will be taken care of, put into foster care or whatever. The tone and policy on immigration under the Trump administration is a frightening abomination. It is anti-human, not to mention anti-human rights. ICE now has a commander-in-chief who openly advocates violence against undocumented immigrants and Trump's obsession with a tiny group of gang members who are in the U.S. legally and illegally is really a thinly veiled attack on immigrants in general. These are people. These are animals. They said they're people. They're not people. These are animals. They're rapists, criminals, animals. Trump can hide behind the technicality of saying, oh, I was just talking about MS-13. But we know. We know what he really thinks because he's told us and he showed us. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. And they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some... I assume are good people. They send the bad ones over because they don't want to pay for them. They don't want to take care of them. Why should they? Donald Trump presents a set of threats that we did not see under Obama. He presents threats we may well not have seen under a president, Hillary Clinton. But at the same time, it's a mistake to not understand 
how we got here on immigration. Part of it is the racism, the bigotry, the hatred that fuels Trump and his real supporters. And it's terrifying. But we also have to recognize that powerful Democrats have also been terrible on issues impacting undocumented immigrants. The culture of impunity, of abuse, of mistreatment, of neglect that permeates the ranks of Customs and Border Patrol and ICE spread under Obama. They weren't held accountable when they could have been, and they should have been. And that helped Trump's racist anti-immigrant agenda to take hold faster and have a broader impact than it would have if these institutions had been confronted and held accountable. Under Trump, it has now become official policy to literally rip children from the arms of their parents when they cross the border to seek asylum. This is not MS-13 and their kids. This is people fleeing political violence that in some cases has been aided, encouraged, or caused by U.S. policy. They are separating children from their parents and sending them into detention. And the Trump administration knows exactly what it's doing. It's deliberate. It's done with intent. The point is to punish people who flee violence, to send them a message that we will shatter your family and probably abuse your children if you dare seek life for you and your kids. In fact, we're going to prosecute you as a criminal if you do. In one case, there was a 53-week-old infant who was taken to a court hearing without a parent. It's sick. Absolutely, pathologically sick. This is unprecedented. This is the worst thing I've seen in 25 plus years of doing the civil rights work. I mean, I am talking to these mothers and they are describing their kids screaming, mommy, mommy, don't let them take me away. Five years old, six years old, and they're just being ripped away. This is a new policy under the Trump administration. Obama was pretty bad on undocumented immigration issues, but this is a whole different level. At the same time, We can't separate what we know about the eight years of Democratic control of the executive branch and the fact that Trump is pushing this to the extreme. Powerful Democrats helped enable this. And until we recognize that and stop acting like all the horrors are the fault of the Republicans or of the unique threat posed by Donald Trump, nothing will fundamentally change. We have to go to the root. These immigration policies are part of a series of issues that have inspired a new generation of candidates running for office in the United States. And they're not just confronting the Trump administration. We see establishment Democratic incumbents being challenged, some for the first time, and they are being challenged from the left by social justice candidates, by anti-war candidates, by Black Lives Matter candidates, by candidates endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, by candidates who are campaigning on a platform to abolish ICE. The terminology used in enforcement circles is that things like secure communities and 287G are force multipliers for ICE that basically use uh, local and state law enforcement to 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 do as to, to do via as proxies what ICE cannot do itself. But it's a vicious cycle because the immigration enforcement also serves as a force multiplier for 
the mass incarceration system. So undoing both, I think that's a very powerful argument that your report makes. Absolutely. And and the that's not the only recommendation that deals with this problem of the increasingly intertwined nature of, you know, federal enforcement and state and local enforcement. We have since 9-11 moved increasingly in the direction of breaking down silos that used to exist, separating state and local law enforcement from federal agencies. Um, and that is dangerous. That is not a good thing. Um, and, I, you know, the the reason why this has happened is that folks, probably really sneakily intelligent people in, in the so-called intelligence community at the federal level, um, made sure, I guess, that the 9-11 Commission report included um, the finding that, for example, one of the problems that led to 9-11 was a failure to, quote, connect the dots. Well, I just want to make it very clear. That's factually bullshit. That is not true. That is not one of the failures that led to 9-11. In fact, the FBI gave the CIA a bunch of very detailed information about the hijackers and said, we're concerned about these people. And the CIA just fucking ignored it. So, like, the idea that, you know, integrating state and local law enforcement into the national intelligence architecture and, you know, having programs like See Something, Say Something, where everybody wants to call the cops every time they see a Muslim in on public transit is just absurd. Like, none of that is actually true. It did, you know, a failure to connect the dots in the sense that state and local law enforcement could have seen or done something differently is just, it's not what happened. It's a, it's a blatant misrepresent, misrepresentation of the actual um, law enforcement fuck-ups and intelligence fuck-ups that led to 9-11. But nonetheless, that has become the, um, the myth that we tell ourselves about what happened in the, um, you know, in the lead up to the 9-11 attacks. And so that's what you see, you know, folks in Congress, that's what you see people in the, in DHS and the FBI and even the CIA and the NSA talking about. And it's certainly what you see at the state and local level um, when these state and local law enforcement officials who have been given literally billions of dollars um, by Department of Homeland Security and DOJ grant programs in the name of counterterrorism over the past, well, I've been doing this for a long time, 17 <laughs> years now. Uh, <laughs> you know, they justify all of that stuff and, and many of the other things that I talk about in the report. Not, you know, when we, when we see local law enforcement through ICE's eyes as a force multiplier, it's not just in the immigration context either. Local law enforcement and state law enforcement are a force multiplier for the FBI as well. Um, you know, collecting huge quantities of information about millions and millions of people all over the country through technologies like license plate readers and surveillance cameras and increasingly will be things like facial recognition systems um, and other forms of, you know, uh, AI-driven analytics. So, if we want to avoid living in a truly dystopian society where I think what we're seeing right now is scary, scary, scary shit happening to immigrants, like, you know, a mother walking with her daughter and then all of a sudden some CBP van rolls up and literally kidnaps the mom out, you know, and takes her away in the middle of, you know, a, a public street in broad daylight. That type of shit is happening to immigrants now. It is very, very easy to imagine a world in which we live under someone even scarier than Donald Trump uh, making use of this newly integrated um, federal, state, local intelligence, law enforcement architecture to do similar things to activists, you know, in, in 20 years who are citizens. So I, it, I really just can't emphasize enough how inaccurate the characterization of 
um, what led to 9-11 was, that it was a failure to connect the dots. But nonetheless, despite how uh, mythical that framing is, it is exactly what is driving all of this really dangerous stuff at the state and local level. And, and I should say, too, that that there's almost no oversight of that type of stuff. Um, you know, and, and there are pockets in the country, like in Seattle and San Francisco, there's some degree of oversight over these so-called fusion centers um, that were established after 9-11. But, you know, one question that folks like Ed Snowden have asked is, to what degree are these fusion centers um, spots where information that may be obtained pursuant to so-called national security authorities by the NSA through dragnet surveillance operations, to what extent is that information effectively being laundered for the purposes of state and local government uh, law enforcement use at these fusion centers? We really don't have answers to those type of, types of questions, but I think they're really important questions. And they're, because through they're parallel reason- construction, local law enforcement can come up with a different rationale and never mention that they got yeah. the initial underlying intelligence from the NSA. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I guess you could sort of, you know, I think in a way, the the publication of this report is kind of opportunistic on our part because we have long wanted these things, right? I mean, the the steps that we are laying out for um, progressive communities to take to divorce themselves from the federal government to sort of build a wall, as we like to say, um, between our communities and the federal enforcement agencies, those are not new goals. Uh, everything in here is stuff that we've wanted to do for quite some time. But under an administration like President Barack Obama, you're not going to find a lot of sympathy for arguments in Democratic, uh, you know, in these big blue cities for saying, you know, the FBI is a really dangerous organization. We should probably remove our law enforcement officials from their task force operations and do whatever we can, frankly, to wall off uh, information about people in our communities from those agencies, you're going to be looked at like a crazy person, frankly. But but now um, because there's I think a constitutional law, Trump, there was a constitutional law scholar in charge yeah. of the ultimately in charge of the FBI. What's there to worry about? That's right. And and now, of course, we see thanks to uh, reporting from the Intercept that in 2014 the FBI's surveillance of Black Lives Matter was much more extensive than we had previously understood. It was not just about social media surveillance. It involved um, confidential human informants. It involved, you know, infiltration and actually physical surveillance of activists following them around the streets, keeping track of what, what they were doing. And, and obviously a lot more that wasn't redacted in, in these documents that were finally released. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, in a sense, what we're doing now is opportunistic to say, we have long warned you people <laughs> about what is happening in this country. And for eight years, nobody really cared because the very attractive, you know, beautifully spoken um, constitutional law professor, first black president was in charge. And so everybody thought everything was copacetic. Um, principles actually matter. You know, procedures actually matter. Things like establishing and solidifying secure communities, that actually really matters. Um, what's going on at the fusion centers really matters from a policy perspective. And it matters because, A, bad things happen when people you like are in charge, but B, somebody like fucking Donald Trump might take the reins of all this shit. And then what? And even if Obama had been a civil libertarian, which obviously he was not, you once a president still just president for four day years and you need to design checks on repressive state institutions with the worst president in mind not the best one 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Congress to end family separation, obviously. The news that children of asylum seekers are being forcibly taken away from their parents by ICE and Border Patrol and then kept in warehouse-style detainment centers around the country sparked an immediate outcry and public demonstrations. Leading that movement is We Belong Together, a coalition of human rights, civil rights, immigration rights, and women's rights organizations, which held demonstrations in early June under the banner Families Belong Together. They are calling for the end of Trump's family separation policy and to defund Border Patrol and ICE. And you can find their petition, shareable graphics, and protest posters for download at familiesbelongtogether.org. We now know a little bit more about the treatment of these immigrants. After Senator Jeff Merkley's visit to a facility in Texas, he described children in, quote, dog kennel-style cages, people crowded in with nothing but a space blanket, unquote. Representative Pramila Jayapal met with immigrant women at a federal prison facility in Seattle whose children were taken away at the southern border. They described how agents use excuses like a photograph or bath to calmly take their children away, but the child was never returned. Some could hear their children screaming for them from the next room. The mothers are being prosecuted in criminal courts, not immigration courts, before they've had their asylum hearings. Many plead guilty to border crossing, not fully aware that they now have a criminal record, disqualifying them for asylum, which is, of course, the whole idea. While we've heard crickets from Republicans, Democrats do seem to be mobilizing quickly. Representative Jayapal is leading 108 of her fellow representatives to demand that Congress stop Department of Homeland Security budget funds from being used for separation practices. In the Senate, California Senator Dianne Feinstein and 31 other senators have introduced the Keep Families Together Act, which prohibits any agency from separating children from families unless it is a case of abuse, trafficking, or neglect. The bill was developed with input from child welfare experts and is sponsored by organizations including the Children's Law Center, the Young Center for Immigration Rights, and Kids in Need of Defense. That also happens to be a short list of organizations that could really use your financial support right now as they hire lawyers and counselors to help those detained children and reunite them with their families. In the House, Representative Lucille Royale Allard of California has introduced two different bills. The first is the renewed Help Separated Families Act of 2018, which aims to protect the parental rights of all immigrant parents, no matter their status, and ensures they have the rights to resources to try to place their children with family members or other caretakers while they are detained. The second bill is the Help Separated Children Act, which aims to give certain legal protections to immigrant children separated from their families, allowing detained parents to participate in the family court system and ensuring that parents and children can still visit and contact each other while the parent is detained. So, call your members of Congress today to throw your support behind these bills. And of course, if you live in a red state, your persistent calls, emails, tweets, etc. are all the more important. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if keeping families together and protecting basic human rights is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress to end family separation via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? 
Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. So according to the Prison Policy 2018 report, there are 34,000 immigrants that are detained by Immigration Customs Enforcement. In fact, as per Congress, 34,000 beds that must be filled every single night with immigrants without papers being held by Immigration Customs Enforcement. There are 13,000 more people in federal prison for criminal convictions related to federal immigration laws. So these are now people who are being criminally charged for immigration violation, which didn't used to happen. And ICE is more and more essentially collaborating with local authorities, even in places that are so-called sanctuary cities. So it feels like a country that, you know, essentially no longer is welcoming immigrants and in fact targets and criminalizes them. And I guess, David, you know, I point out to what we used to call immigration in in our country, which was INS, Immigration Naturalization Service. Services. Immigration Naturalization Service. It's a service for the immigrants. But after 9-11, after 2001, what's it? It became Immigration Customs Enforcement. 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 So, David, you're basically an advocate for immigration detention abolition if I'm not mistaken. So kind of put those things together for us. Not only has the name changed between, um, in 2003, from INS to ICE, which actually split up the services. Originally, the immigration services used to be in the Department of Treasury, then they moved to labor, and in the 40s they moved to justice, and then now it's Department of Homeland Security. So you can even see just in the bureaucratic placement of the institution, it's gotten harsher. And Mm. our... The federal attitude towards just immigrants in general has switched from being about contributions, uh, labor contributions to criminality, and then now terrorism. So there's been a massive swing over a course of 100 years. So what does that look like in terms of kind of, let's take it from what it was 25 years ago to now? Um, detention in the early 90s, there was about 7,000 persons detained every day. And then there was, there was some major laws that passed in 1996. By President Bill Clinton, signed a, Democrat. By Clinton. a Democratic president. And then by the end of Clinton's term, detention had tripled, just within four or five years. Wow. And then since then, it's doubled again. And so, so even though the bed mandate that Maria is talking about is um, at 34,000, I think the daily, average daily population is about 40, actually, tonight and tomorrow. 40,000. 40,000 the average. Beds that are filled with bodies that basically the only difference between them and other people is that they were not born in this country, that they're not citizens, correct? Yeah, I mean, they're being deported. So they're being detained in the process of their of deportation proceedings. Some of them entered lawfully, but then fell out of status for very reason, other reasons. Others entered unlawfully and are undocumented and might be fighting for their rights to stay. Wow. So we know that in this day and age, or even before, I mean, it in this new system that you say, David, under DHS and, you know, ICE as enforcement and not services, we know that immigrants are being targeted regardless of, of even of criminal background. So, for example, just high-profile activists 
even journalists like Manuel Duran. He's a journalist who was doing his job in Memphis. And the other activists that was, there's just stories of actors being targeted. And then also the fact that many immigrants, they get an order of removal for missing their one and only court hearing because the papers were sent to them in English, right? So that gets you detained. So this is the part I have, Moni, because it, it feels right now with the administrations like all undocumented immigrants are criminals and they are committing crimes and we need to stop this because of national security. But what is an immigration offense and when is it considered a crime? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you said about immigration services, because even the agency right now that processes applications, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, actually issues about half of the charging documents putting people in deportation proceedings. So they have a very, you know, enforcement focus, even on the services side of the agency. So a lot of the people that we're seeing in detention either come from a process where they're applying for something. People are also, you know, I think something that was set up under the prior administration that is now, you know, really being... um kind of put on steroids, as I like to describe. You know, it was set up nicely to deport the maximum number of people under the previous administration. But it's this whole concept of what they called back then secure communities, which is information sharing databases that, you know, allow local law enforcement to do the job of immigration enforcement. And so we see, you know, just an increase in the over-policing, an increase in the racial profiling, and something that gets people both into the criminal justice the system and into the immigration system, which then leads to more incarceration of Latinos. But what are we missing in this debate? Because when you have an attorney general who like literally equates like everything's on the same level that you are a criminal, like it is now sort of this DOJ thing and you need to go to jail. The argument's so simplistic, David, you know what I'm saying? And even this conversation, which is adding actual facts doesn't really hit home in other parts of the country. So, like, how do you start educating people about how serious this issue is? <laughs> His face was like, damn, Varela. <laughs> you mentioned that the the argument against immigrants is very simplistic. You know, either they committed crimes. In other periods of time, it was for their health or for their ideology. It's very flexible in that way. There's lots of reasons to not like immigrants that are out there, and they've been used for hundreds of years. But why it's important is because this deportation machine that Obama ratcheted it up and made it very efficient. And that's why he was called the deporter-in-chief. Trump just took it over. So this is a status quo going on. It's Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now Trump. Trump is just sort of a raging version of that status quo. You know, he has his, his, this terrible rhetoric. He implies that people can be heard out in the streets. So this is what I like to tell people, is that there's deportation. There's the removal of people, the removal of hundreds of thousands of people a year. But then there's also the fear of deportation. And that affects people, too. And, and that is really where the scale is at. There's 11 million people that are undocumented. They're all potentially deportable. And their behaviors, and, and whether, whether they pick up their kids at school, or uh, how they drive, or if they drive, or where they can work, or if they can leave an abusive spouse, on and on and on. That is part of the system. And that's what we created by uh, going after these people, especially under Trump, on such a wide scale. Basically, there's no protected class. This country has never really been welcoming for immigrants. The majority of the laws that have passed have been exclusionary laws and primarily based on race. Mm. So we have to acknowledge that because we like to kind of romanticize the past to think like, you know, we used like to be Ellis so Island. welcoming, yeah, yeah, yeah. but really we, we've never been welcoming. Chinese I think, exclusion act. Right, and like right. All the, right the and I, I think what we have now on top of it is that we have a, 
you know, private prisons that are benefiting from the imprisonment of primarily black and brown bodies. And so if you add this anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-immigrant history that we have in this country, this, you know, very isolationist history, we've taken people when we need them. And then as we don't want them anymore, we tell them you're no longer welcome. And then you add to that the massive profit that people are making based on incarcerating people. That's our immigration system, and that is, that is this country. We've just heard clips today, starting with the David Pakman show, pointing out the pattern of white supremacists using the term breed when referring to immigrants. Off Kilter laid out the policy and some of the stories behind the separation of families. Ring of Fire Radio followed up with more details on the same subject. On the Media explained how ICE propaganda ends up in our media and creates a false narrative that inextricably connects immigration with crime. Intercepted made the argument that the Democrats helped lay the groundwork for our abusive immigration system. The Dig spoke with Cade Crockford, criticizing the Democrats' past failures to build an immigration system with defensive measures that have the worst president in mind rather than the best one. Our activism for today is in support of multiple bills working their way through the House and Senate. And finally, we just heard In the Thick explaining the governmental shift in attitude regarding our immigration system. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. Long time no call. Hey, listen, I'm listening to the uh, episode on confronting the legacy of the Confederacy. And the clip at the end where you're talking about the John Oliver clip, uh, I do like your perspective on it and how you say that the other clip you listened to kind of switched your opinion. This poor guy who is, again, clinging on to a, an assumed family history of that they were poor so they didn't have slaves. I'd like to point out that on your show in a previous episode, you played uh, Tim Wise's clip, The History of the White Race. That right there played for this guy who was waving the Confederate flag could easily explain to him why, even though his family was poor and they did not own slaves, they could have easily been duped. Like you claim, you know, like you say, forever, the rich have been using the poor as pawns to fight wars. Again, uh, great show, great clips, great breakdown and analogies. Keep up the great work, Jay. Stay awesome. Jay, it's Dave from Olympia. Responding to the Confederacy episode, particularly the clips that you played at the very end. The individual from the Descendants of Confederate Soldiers group makes this really, really poor argument. And in, in a nutshell, you know, the argument is his ancestors didn't own slaves. Therefore, his ancestors couldn't have fought to uphold slavery. That logical leap, for all the reasons you pointed out, is a huge leap of logic. It's not proven, but I guess it's possible that his family didn't like to uphold slavery. So, okay, why not? Your family fought for other reasons. 
The next leap is that therefore the war was not fought to uphold slavery. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Even if one soldier fought for other reasons, that has no bearing for why the war was fought. But okay, in theory, you know, the, for, the war wasn't fought to uphold slavery. He then fills that lack of knowledge with a certain knowledge that we know, therefore, the war was fought to uphold Southern culture, um, which is such a nefarious term. Southern culture is white Southern culture. And it's just the comfortableness with the nuances in the language. We are different in the South. We take things a little bit slower. It's just a culture, you know, like black culture, because blacks aren't part of Southern culture. And then the argument finishes up because the war was fought to defend quote unquote Southern culture, the Confederate monuments are therefore art. They're not racist symbols. They're not intimidation. They're art because of this tenuous chain of logic. And therefore, if you want to remove those symbols, you're a barbarian, you're a bad person because of this poorly constructed chain of logic. Now, this was not constructed <laughs> as an exercise in formal logic because none of the steps, the premises aren't true, the steps don't follow, it doesn't make any sense. The argument was built up in this man's mind to justify his existing beliefs about the Confederate monuments. It's a mental construction. Arguing about why his ancestors decided to fight or not fight or whatever. First of all, he can't know, you can't know their mind. And it's a rabbit hole because it's this weird lack of an argument that ultimately leads to this really damaging con conclusion that the symbols of the Confederacy, the, the glorification of the Confederacy in today's world is a good thing and you're a bad person for wanting to take down the monument. That's where the focus of the argument should be. The second clip, it follows almost the same poorly constructed logical pattern. You know, running it backwards, my family was too poor to afford slaves, which is this ridiculously telling argument again, right? <laughs> it's almost saying, well, we would have got slaves, but we were too poor. Especially considering this is not a logical argument. This is a constructed justification for where I want to get to. And since I don't actually know why my great-great-grandfather thought because I didn't know him, I'm making up a reason that fits good in my mind. And the reason I chose was not that my great-great-grandfather didn't believe in slavery, not that my great-great-grandfather just didn't own slaves, it's that slaves were too expensive. Therefore, when my family fought in the war, they fought to defend their farm. Maybe? <laughs> I mean, there's lots of reasons for going to war. Again, poor logical construction. When they fought to defend their farm, they fought under this flag, and therefore, this flag represents my culture. There's nothing else in the world this flag could possibly represent. The chain of logic is 
It's abysmal. It isn't meant to be convincing to anybody but himself, and it's an attempt to justify supporting this clearly racist symbol. It's, it's an internal justification, not meant as an argument to convince anybody but themselves. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate all you do. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, for any long-term listeners, one of the things you have probably heard me say before is, uh, is sort of one of the foundational elements of how I try to understand the world around me, which is that no one thinks of themselves as the bad guy. It it becomes a lot easier to understand how and why people do the things they do if you understand that in their own eyes, at least, they are not the bad guy. And even if they are doing something quote-unquote wrong, it's for a greater purpose, a greater good, and is therefore excusable. So I was thinking about all of that for all of the obvious reasons as it relates to today's topic. And, you know, the hypocrisy doesn't even have to come into play. Just any normal human being uh, should have problems with this. But how can the party that used to very recently refer to themselves as the party of family values feel perfectly good about separating families and basically mentally torturing people? Uh, at least mentally torture. I mean, some of them are literally being tortured. But that aside, the, if the policy is to separate families, then the policy is to mentally damage and scar young children and their parents. So, you know, how, how, do, how do people come to the conclusion that that's the right thing to do? And the best I can come up with is this overly fervent adherence to the belief in the law. And that laws are completely morally neutral because technically speaking, if you write a law, you are not putting anyone in jail. You are not separating anyone's family just because you have written a law. Someone has to break that law in order to have the punishment inflicted upon them. So as the argument would go, every law is completely morally neutral and only criminals are to be held morally culpable for whatever happens to them. That's my best guess of how that logic works. To try to break it down, though, you can do the sort of standard, like, let's take this to a logical extreme and see if it still holds up. Because I don't think, you know, I hope I am right about this. I don't think a lot of conservatives would go around saying that, like, jaywalking should be punished by pulling someone's fingernails out and then putting them to death. You know, like, you could write that law, and under the idea that laws are morally neutral, there's nothing wrong with it, and only someone who jaywalks would be responsible for their own torture and death. But I don't think people are going to agree with that. So if you don't agree that torture and death could be morally written as the punishment for any number of minor infractions, well, then you clearly agree that the writing of laws, not just the infraction of those laws, has a moral element to it. So again, 
I don't think anyone thinks of themselves as the bad guy, and they need moral arguments or justifications to help them sleep at night. And I think that this is one of those cases, but this brings me back to the voicemail we just heard from Dave in Olympia. Now, I, I love hearing from Dave in Olympia. When I hear from him, I often hear from him on multiple subjects all at once. He'll call in three or four times in a row on different episode topics. Sometimes he'll call in three or four times in a row on the same topic, uh, just trying to perfect his his comments. And so that's what happened this time. The, the message you heard from him was his most succinct version of that argument. But there was one element in another one of his recordings that I think really comes into play right here. It's a bad argument. It doesn't make sense. It's not convincing, but that's kind of the point. It doesn't have to be. It only has to hang together just enough for the person that's making it to kind of fight off the cognitive dissonance, which, you know, holding essentially a wrong opinion causes in your own brain. It's, it's mentally and I think it's just physically unpleasant to, you know, think two different things at once. And so you kind of need to construct justifications uh, in order to live with yourself. And they're not like watertight logical explanations because they're not intended to be. They're just intended to be enough of cognitive buffers so that you can continue to function. So I completely agree with this. And I think that this is exactly what's at play, whether a person is defending the Confederacy or their own ancestor or justifying the policy of tearing young children away from their parents. They have to build an argument there isn't an argument that's good enough to really stand up. There isn't an argument to say that this is genuinely a moral practice. But you could probably come up with an argument or two that's just good enough to placate your own cognitive dissonance. And I get it. I get why that's totally necessary. As Dave said, uh, cognitive dissonance is at least a mental, if not physical, discomfort. It really is a bad position to be in, which is why I always talk about how great it is to have a philosophy that's based on just trying to find actual solutions and figure out the way to have the best outcome for the most number of people, because then you're not stuck with cognitive dissonance. You're not stuck having an end desire that you then have to backwards construct an argument for. So for anyone who is struggling with cognitive dissonance like that, uh, based on some horrible, indefensible policies, I, I gotta tell you, the answer is not to come up with a better argument to defend the policy. The answer is to let go of the policy that's causing you all that discomfort. As always, I would love your input on this. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks a huge amount to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Life podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.